Welcome to the Everlasting Education Podcast, where we are seeking the best of education through a gentle contempt for education. Hi folks, I'm Scott Postman. I'm joined by Joffrey Swait, and we are your hosts today. We are back on our horse, on the Norms and Nobility horse, a book by uh, David Hicks. We took a break last week, uh, but now we're back to sort of going through this classic of classical education, chapter by chapter. Fabulous. And we are on chapter three, titled Teaching the Father of the Man. It's an interesting chapter because it's so small. Uh, It's a a short chapter, but at the same time, it's packed with some uh, pretty important ideas. And so we're going to read just a couple of quotes that sort of set the stage for where Hicks is headed, and then we'll unpack some of these ideas. So in uh, section two, he is contrasting Socrates and another teacher, I Socrates, in in, uh, light of their two different approaches to education. And he says, whereas Socrates challenges the appearances, he uses a great tradition of learning in the arts, letters, and sciences to excite in his students a vision of those enduring values and truths that underlie the world of appearances. Once armed with the wisdom of this tradition, he believes his students will understand justice, heed the demands of truth and beauty, and lead the life of virtue, no matter how alluring all appearances to the contrary. This teacher's name is Isocrates. So this is um, the two, two uh, approaches that he's going to unpack uh, that would sort of be on the same page, and they're uh, contrary to two approaches that he is going to kind of debunk. So his final quote here, he says, classical education's emphasis on mastering an inherited body of knowledge rather than on developing a happy, well-adjusted child makes possible a profound and intimate relationship between the schoolmaster and his pupils. A profound and intimate relationship between the schoolmaster and his pupils. Is that something to be desired? I think so. I think in a, in a right context, it definitely is. Well, let's unpack the term intimacy because you know, I think that's an interesting one. Intimacy uh, demands trust, right? There is no intim- intimacy without trust. And you know, I think that that's a term that we can healthily expand, right? I think we're often uncomfortable with the idea um, that, for example, you and I uh, may be quite intimate, Yes, right? <laughs> and we should. You know, if if your mind uh, drifted to inappropriate places, you need to rewrite the def- the dictionary in your brain to, <laughs> to handle that idea of intimacy. And so then, you know, that with 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 our children, but also with anyone we have authority over or authority under, an ideal is to be able to have intimacy, not distance. If if intimacy is including trust, yeah, I, I think I think the idea of intimacy that goes along with trust is going to be vulnerability, right? The ability to be vulnerable with one another about the subject matter that we're, we're both approaching because there is trust, right? Right. And one of the ways vulnerability expresses itself in education is through the, the acknowledging of ignorance. Yes. Right. Um, if either the teacher or the student um, refuses to acknowledge their ignorance, no learning will be had that day. <laughs> so it takes, and he does, he talks about this where he says that it requires the kind of humility that allows for this. But one of the things that Hicks is really pointing to is the, uh, I guess, pushing back against the modern idea of, uh, for a lack of a better term, catering to the child, right? And what he's trying to draw out of this chapter and in, in what these two quotes reflect is that we are to be teaching to the father of the men uh, or the man, the idea that instead of teaching two 12 year olds, we should be teaching them 
uh, what they should be aspiring to. And that's contrary to modern education because we don't want to teach virtue and values and morals in modern education because that implies a standard. Right. And, and and it it suggests that, you know, we aren't or we aren't ideal as we are. Right. So modern education is informed by Rousseau. Um, you know, the the noble savage, our our children are noble savages (laughs) already like, you know, already good. And they should be, they should be catered to, to and allowed to flourish as they are, which is not gardening. No, right. That's just, that's just letting weeds grow. Well, he, he says as much here. This is a, a fantastic quote uh, when he, he's talking about the romantic school of child psychology. And he says that um, the utilitarian sophist, um, this is on page 37, uh, he says, this is the school that despite the turn of the screw, Lord of the Flies, and High Wind of Jamaica <laughs> believe in the ideal child. Right. You know, I, I have to, it's interesting, though, just mentioning the Lord of the Flies. This is a little bit of a of a, a divergence, but I think relevant. Uh, my wife just absolutely loves this story she came across a few a few years ago. Uh, within living memory, several Polynesian boys were marooned on an island for over a year, mm. a small island, and before they were finally found, they flourished. Really? They were Christians. Uh. They sang hymns. Wow. Like good Polynesian Christians <laughs> do. And, and that, that was the difference. Yeah. Right. Cause, cause the natural human state is in fact, a you know, to go all Lord of the flies, the Lord of the flies, <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's cool that there's actually a, a living example of, it doesn't have to be that way. There's Jesus. There anyway. is Jesus. <laughs> well, and I think that's really what he's getting to is the idea that we should be able to teach virtue. Right. And, right. and the reason that there's trust between the student and the, and the schoolmaster, he suggests is because the schoolmaster embodies those very values that he's trying to impart to mm. those to those young men. So he's not just teaching facts and knowledge. He's not just assuming that a 12-year-old boy is a 12-year-old boy. He's assuming that there is virtue to be sought and pursued, and he's going to embody that virtue, and he's going to assume that those 12-year-old boys will become men who should pursue virtue. I think this is a, a great time to confront a difficult idea. Uh, and I, I think uh, that we as teachers, you know, we, we can, you know, even if we are being philosophical about things uh, as we are being now, we, we get caught up in, in pedagogical methodology. We get, get caught up in, in knowing the information of our field and we gloss over the weight of saying, you must be a good man to teach. Mm. Right, that that's big. That yes. that 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 should be as as confrontational as 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 any any thundering sermon that you you sat before after after your your week of, of failing and sin. You know, think you know, as a man, you must be as a man or a woman. I must put it here, but as as a man, you must be virtuous in order to teach. And you know, in a one sense, it's not as big a statement as it may seem, and in another, it's far bigger. Um, in the sense that it's, it's not as big as, you know, the, the, the gospel is not far from us, right? right? God's law is not far from us and we can do these things. We can be good parents, for example. Right. Um, and yet the, the, it is still an enormous burden and responsibility, right? So if you decide to be a teacher, you need to look at it that same way. Not that you are the same as a parent, but you've, you've willingly taken up this, uh, this authority. 
Yes. You're, the, the parents of the child have given you some authority in that child's life, and that is enormous. It's not enough for you to know when the War of Independence started. I, I think that's such an excellent point because we talk about this idea of in in parentis, uh, in loco parentis, this idea that that teachers are standing in for the parent as mm-hmm. as a sort of you know hireling, uh, but but we don't want to take the hireling kind of you know in in the scriptures the hireling runs when the wolf comes right right um, but but they are coming in under the you know they've been delegated authority by the parents um, so they dare we need, say that they are the avatar of the parents they are <laughs> they should be and so they do need to be you know we need to be good people and and that that. And, and we're using the word good here in its in its most proper sense, Virtue. right? Yes, Virtuous. exactly. And, and so in modern education, what Hicks is pointing to is the fact that we have flipped education on its head. And in the modern education system says, these are 12-year-olds, like you mentioned the Rousseauian idea that this is what it is, but there is no ought. Yes. And, and, and so in, in There's no standard set for, I mean, this yeah. chapter is about the standard set for, for students. Yeah. But- Part of the problem here, and he's pointing out that the the okay this this Rousseauian way of thinking is disastrous, and part of the reason for that that's not really unpacked in this chapter, but you know is is relevant to what we're saying now is it doesn't set a standard for the teacher, right? Right. If 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 we're going to let the twelve year old just do what he wants to do, then I'm a babysitter. I'm well, a babysitter who knows more than him. Yeah, and the well the the teacher's job at this point, if if we're going to go to education that way, the teachers role isn't to be the model, but rather to understand the child and to get into the child's mind and, and to associate and relate to the child. That's, that's the, you know. so then let me, uh, let me ask you a question. Am I not supposed to understand the child? Well, I think there's enough that, that a good teacher does understand about the child. They're a sinner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're, you know, what age they're at, they, they should be able to assess where they're at in learning. And then they should have a standard for them, both academically, intellectually, and virtuously. Right. Right. And, and they have to model that themselves. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And you know, so a lot of wisdom comes into play. And if, if we, if we expand out of, you know, perhaps we're thinking, you know, of the classroom, like I, I think of coaching, athletic coaching, mm-hmm. right. Um, I'm a big guy. I've always been a really big guy. Uh, I coach rugby. I am not going to ask the guy who's going to play on the wing, the, the short, fast kid, to play like I played, right? I, I am going to teach him how to be the best wing he can be. But we're all playing rugby, and yeah. there's a right way to play. Right, right. right. It may look different between you and one of my sons, who's also enormous, right? <laughs> it's going to be different. And yet we're, we're all playing rugby. This is how we do it. This is our goal. How can you excel? But I'm not catering to that child. I am playing to his strengths yes. as someone who has assumed responsibility to make him better. Well, and in, in, Applied in what you're talking about is that there is a standard for that child. It may be not be the standard for you because of your size, exactly. But there is a standard that he needs to rise to, and it is not unkind or unwarranted of you as the coach to hold him accountable yes. to rise to that standard. Exactly right. Yeah. Well, and I think I think that's one of the areas that sometimes, um, and and if we can speak really candidly, this is sometimes where parents um, can potentially struggle. Um, mm. Where where a teacher yes. is challenging their child, and a parent who uh, you know tends to make excuses for their children, um, and we, we recognize the authority of the parents, but a parent has to be a good person as well. Yes, right. Well, and, and I think there's there's uh, one of the problems with that 
and you know, and again, we uh, like uh, our our big thing at Kepler is the authority of of the parents. Yeah. So do not read into this any you know anything like that. Well, you know, what, when I lived in South Carolina, there was a big kerfuffle because in North Carolina, some of the school boards started uh, started telling parents what to pack the, in their kids' lunch. Oh wow! Right? And it was just, <laughs> oh, right? we're, we're not we're not going no, no, anywhere no. anywhere near that. But you know, there's a, there's a problem sometimes with the difficulty parents have with others holding their kids. To, to a certain standard. And that is that we've grown up in a culture in which that wasn't done for us. Right. That's right. Exactly. And so we really struggle. There's, are there all the natural human temptations of, you know, if he, he thinks little of my kid and he must think little of me and, you know, my kids representing the family and all these, those, that's, those are just universal concerns and things that we, we have to deal with. And of course, always remembering the teacher can be wrong. And, but, um, it's, it's exacerbated by the fact that we came up in systems that told us we were okay. You're okay. I'm okay. You're yeah. okay. And so then when, when we, so it's, we as children didn't get to encounter that teacher you know, often. We didn't get to encounter that teacher who held us to a standard, who kicked our rear ends when necessary. Yeah. And so then if, if the first time we encounter it is when someone does that to our kid, that can be particularly challenging. Well, it's it's particularly challenging too sometimes for the student um, if they know that their parent isn't maybe on that same page, right? right? And so then we used to we used to call it slanted news. And when I was an administrator of a school and we had parent orientation, we'd always say this: "Parents, um, we promise to do something for you if you'll promise to do something for us." Mm. And that is, we won't believe everything Johnny says about you unless we until we <laughs> check it out. <laughs> uh, and as as long as you promise not to believe everything Johnny says about us and until you come and check it out, right. right? And 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 this these are just you know these are little nuances and, and little things that have to be overcome um, in education when when you have teachers and you have a particular philosophy of the parents, but it does imply in classical education that there is a standard that we all right. need to rise to: parent, teacher, and student. Absolutely. Yeah. So maybe going back to the beginning and kind of unpacking a little bit of what Hicks unpacks to get here. Um, he begins with a sort of a implied education, one that's not really listed or treated here, and that's that Homeric traditional education that the Sophists actually is who he starts with, that they came and challenged. Which is a great beginning to the chapter because there's a, a lot, when he starts talking about the Sophists, that is obviously um, our modern heathenism, our modern yeah. paganism. <laughs> well, and you know, a Sophist is somebody who does not see truth as absolute. Um, it's it's relative, and it's all for the sophists. It's all about appearances. And so he says here uh, in the very beginning, uh, the first part of the chapter, first his temper and behavior are governed by ideas. His life maintains that perfect balance between thought and action, theory and practice that makes him seem to his students the very incarnation of his lessons. And second, uh, he has a broad and penetrating curiosity and delightful uh, delightfully dialectical mind, eager to devise and test a hypothesis and quick challenges, excuse me, quick to challenge. I think I lost my place here. Quick to challenge ideas and observations, but slow to accept an attire. And this, this idea is Socrates. Um, this is the ideal man, the ideal teacher that he says is embodied by Socrates, who challenges the sophists who think it's all about appearances. Yes, and I think this is actually the great. So Socrates is 
I, I would argue, the great transition into making Western civilization Western civilization, yes. right? Yep. Uh, because, so I think one of the great markers of, of Western civilization, you know, it, <laughs> it for a long time was a Christian civilization. It could even be argued it still is. But even even before, and this is why so many of the church fathers are, you know, just are fascinated uh, by the Greeks, but w- with with Socrates, we have the transition to a culture that defines goodness and virtue as right versus wrong. Yes, as opposed to say honorable and dishonorable. Right, and this is why you you, you mentioned Homeric, right? So yep. you you read Homer and you see that that's still a culture where uh, what is good or bad is judged uh, by honor. As opposed to judged by some sort of rightness. Yeah, you you go back to Pericles' statement that the the uh, the strong do what they can and the weak suffer what they must. Right, right, and and really in that Homeric sort of idea, um, you know, we can even see this in the tragedies. Pride, for example, is not a bad thing, but it becomes a taboo when it becomes hubris. Yes. Right. So when it's excessive pride, it's you know you're you're uh, writing checks that you can't cash, kind of pride. Right. Yes. Um, and and the, your quote, by the way, about the strong and, and the weak, is what takes us to the Lord of the Flies. Yes, exactly. And, and well, we can, what we see a complete uh, full circle, but maybe we'll get there in a minute. Uh, what, what, what you guys just heard right now was Scott deciding not, in fact, to record a two-hour podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we could go a, a long way We could there. go on for a while, yeah. Well, the sophists come along then and say, well, you know, they, they sort of embody this Homeric, but in a way that they, that they, they sort of extrapolate from it that we can make it mean whatever we want to. Right. Right. And so whatever works, whatever looks good, whatever gets us where we want to go becomes sort of a pragmatism. And Socrates challenges that. And he starts asking things like, well, what's defined? What is virtue? You know, what is justice? What are these things? And the sophists don't like that because now you're challenging these appearances. We have things that look good. Matter of fact, and, and I don't want to go too far off there, but remember the Greeks had guys that were vagrants, bums, prisoners that they kept on hand um, in the mm-hmm. prison so that when when you had the you know, the culture, everybody's starting to, uh, what, uh, Gerard, you know, talks yeah. about this thing. They have a scapegoat, right? right? So when everything starts getting tense, we, we actually have somebody that we can execute to make everybody happy and satisfy and don't disrupt this system because it works. Right. Right. And uh, it's, it's interesting to think, uh, of, you know, it's a lot of Christians are very comfortable with the idea of, well, God prepared the way for Christ, um, through the Roman Empire, right? And they'll talk, oh, all the roads and 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 shipping lanes and communication just prepared, uh, the, you know, the world or the Western world at least for the gospel. Um, but you know, maybe Socrates well, had a similar, you know, <laughs> in, intellectual effect, yeah. right? Because it's it started to break down the the uh, I think naturally human way. Of, of being, you know, of, of scapegoating, of strength versus weakness, yeah. do, of domination. And, and he does. He does exactly that. And then Isocrates comes along, and, and he, he actually transitions more from, from the dialectic where Socrates is just going to challenge assumptions. And, you know, he's never going to give you what the answer is. He's just going to challenge assumptions. But then Isocrates says, well, here's some standards. Right. Here's some virtue that we would expect people to actually embody and live out and do. And so this is that right versus wrong thing that you're talking about. And so, you know, we've been, we've been camping a lot on, on how things ought to be. But, you know, there, there are a couple of, of uh, examples that he gives in this chapter of, uh, of how, how things are but ought not to be. Yeah. 
right? Some of the some of the the, the bad modes of thinking, right? Child psychology, et cetera. I wonder if you could unpack some of that for us. Well, I think part of the the child psychology part is where uh, the modern sophists come in, right? And and we're going to start with the the ises, right? And and not the oughts. And in child psychology or in in modern education, the child psychology takes on this. Uh, this role of trying to understand the child, uh, placate to the child, and really just help the child be situated and happy right where they're at without hurting their ego, without hurting their esteem, right. you know, these kinds of, this is, um, a lot of parents may remember um, Spock, Dr. Spock. Mm-hmm. This is sort of the Dr. Spock yes. uh, approach. Well, uh, there's a fascinating quote uh, here halfway through the, the second section of chapter three. Um so Isocrates must have perceived childhood as a period of becoming yeah. rather than a state of being. Children, he recognized, want to be brought up. They do not want to remain 12-year-olds. The healthy child wants to become an adult, just as the adult, the mature adult wants to be an adult. For this reason, Isocrates taught his students what, in fact, they wanted to know, how to think and act like a mature person. And so it, it's we actually, I think, have a tendency as, as moderns um, to – to think of, and this is really interesting to think about the complex of Greek thoughts and the things that we falsely assign to Greek thought, you know, and Gnosticism and all these. Um, I mean, the, uh, I'm going to start recording a two-hour podcast myself. <laughs> but it, it, we should recognize that it is bizarre to think of a child as um, one who is being as opposed to becoming, mm-hmm. right? A child is immature by definition. We can talk about snails and dogs in their immature states, but for some reason, when we start talking about humans, like Johnny's already exactly what he needs to be. Right. (laughs) Well, and and so I I wonder, you know, I I wonder how, um, you know, with, with a classical educator who has this different mindset, I wonder how this is going to be accomplished other than, uh, meeting challenges, right? By, right? by by certain cultural assumptions, you know, so I don't think there's a parent or a child or, or even a teacher who is in, you know, taking this, this other view or this Rousseauian view and, and, and intentionally said, well, you know, I, I just, you know, I, I don't have any desire for my child to get better. It's, it's more ingrained. It's the, it's the soil that they're, that they're, that they've been raised in. Right. So now that's up the, the task of the classical educator is to confront this, yes. but in a way that, you know, we, we say uh, rejection, tolerance, acceptance, right? Whenever you bring a new idea, it seems like a new idea, um, but really it's a very old idea. So how do educators confront this? You know, in, in you, you have a, a child in your class who, you know, thinks that you're going to placate to them and, you know, just love them, be nice to them, you know, no matter where they're at. How are you as a teacher? Maybe that would be a good example to give us. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that there, there needs to be, um, that the, the, you need to show the, the child that uh, you care, yep. that you love, but that you will not let go of the standard. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and, and that can, can be a, a little difficult to process. Um, it's, it's one of the, it's one of those things where it, it's, you know, I guess, I guess you would call it tough love, but you know, it's funny how often when I think about teaching, I go back to coaching, which, you know, which is a, a yeah. form, it's, it's teaching. Um, and how, you know, you, <laughs> you, uh, you can call the athletes out for the, you know, for their, for laziness, for doing things badly, um, 
And but you you need to show, not just feel inside, but you need to show how much you care, and you need to reward the good. Yes, right. Uh, and in fact, it, you know, if to take a so sort of a cynical approach to it, the more you do that, the more you have, you know, you 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 have gained, earned the trust, and the more you have the ethos to say, no, listen, this is wrong. You must change this and do it this new way. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. You, you, you've, you've earned that by, by saying, yeah, you know what, what you just did there was good, but it has to be consistent to the standard. If all it is, is an aleatory, like, oh, he was, he was in a good mood today. <laughs> right. And so then he's pleased with me, you know, just as with a parent or any authority figure that's, that's harmful. Well, I like that you used the word ethos there when, when you were talking about the teacher who is able to speak into the child's life, because I think that's what Hicks is getting at, right? When he right. says that there is this, there is this sort of, um, you know, men, uh, you know, meshing of the minds. I, I don't know the word he uses there, but, but this, this coming together of the minds of the child and the teacher um, where the child wants to become like the teacher. They, they are in some ways sort of mesmerized by what they know, by the standard they live out. And so their teacher, their coach becomes that embodied example of what's being taught. So you can remind them of the standard, yes. um, you know, verbally and talking and, and, and addressing, you know, wrongs, but it has to be embodied. So I wholeheartedly agree with this. And so I think this is a, this is a moment where we, we return to talking about the family and parents parents, when you are choosing teachers, yes. first of all, put yourself in a position where you can choose teachers. Kepler, yeah, that's, that's really education. <laughs> yeah. Kepler, shameless, Kepler. shameless plug. But I mean, we're doing, we're doing things this way because we believe in it. Uh, but you know, put yourself in a position where you can choose the teachers and then choose teachers that you want your kids to be like. Right. Right? That's right. And, and you know, you can have a broad view of that, right? If you're, you're raising a girl, you don't have to choose all woman teachers, right? right? Um, but, but you want to choose teachers that, you know, oh, I want my kid to have that and to be like that. Oh, and also I want my, my kid to have what she has and my kid to have what he has. Um, you know, when I, when they're playing athletics, you know, are, are my coaches, are the, are these coaches people that I want my kid to be like? Right. And in any in any sphere where you're putting your child under someone's authority, you know, is is the gymnastics teacher, the jujitsu teacher, the boss at Subway. Right. Are these people that I want? And as your children get older, yeah, they can they can flex out a little more. Maybe their boss at Subway is not someone admirable and they have to grow up to be able to handle that. But, you know, particularly early on, this needs to be in the front of your mind. I, I, and again, I, I love that you brought up the fact that, you know, there are male and female teachers and, and in our day and age where, you know, not making distinctions is such a, you know, this diversity yeah, yeah. conversation. I think there's so much importance, um, you know, that rests on parents making these kind of decisions because you do want, if you have a daughter, you want her to emulate other godly women. Yeah. And if you have young men, you want them to, to emulate other godly men. And yes. so these, these are, uh, this is profound and this is important. And I would even say that there are times, I'm, I'm not saying that having a, a female teacher is anything wrong with a young man having a female teacher, but there are certain occasions and times and subjects even maybe where he needs uh, the instruction right. of another godly man. And I, you know, I stand by that, whether, you know, I know that's probably not completely popular <laughs> with a lot of people, but I think that's so essential. Yeah. Well, it, it needs to be a, 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 a complex of, of wise thought. Right. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, that, that should certainly be, be a part of the equation. Well, 
As we sort of draw near to an end here, I want to come back maybe to this quote that we read in the very beginning and see how he's unpacked that. And and we've talked a little bit about these things. But uh, speaking of Isocrates, he says uh, right here in section two, once armed with the wisdom of this tradition, and, and I'm going to call this the classical education tradition, he believes his students will understand justice, heed the demands of truth and beauty, and lead the life of virtue no matter how alluring all appearances to the contrary. So when, when we look at what classical education is trying to do, a classical education sets this standard out before the students and expects you will know what, what is just, what is right and wrong, and you're going to do it. You're, we expect that that's what your education will do for you. Right, and, and what it does is it, it, it's, you know, it'll, it allows us, that mode of thinking allows us to set a biblical standard right. uh, for ourselves and for our children. Um, otherwise, like if we go back to the, the honor way of thinking or right, to, the, to the pagan way of thinking, then all we're left is, well, what would make me successful in society's eyes? Uh-huh. Not what would make me a good man. Right? Yes. And so that, that would inform our educational choices, right? So what, what degree is the shiniest? Right. Right. You know, what, what job is the shiniest? And, and so then you impoverish your education immediately. Right. And and that's so much of what modern education does, isn't right. it? I mean, just, that's what it promises. Yes, you, we can give you shiny jobs. <laughs> it, look, here's the field right now is most in demand, and this yes. is what they're paying, and this is why you ought to go to our school so that we can give you this job, right? Instead With, of being the best you can be, yeah, be the best human being. Yeah, we almost sounded like an army slogan there. <laughs> I'm glad we pulled back, <laughs> or maybe no one remembers that. I think that was yeah. in the '90s. Oh no, yeah, be all you can be. Well. <laughs> Classical education, be all you can be. (laughs) Excellent close. So long, everybody. God bless.